Well, good morning once again to everyone. Trying something a little different. I've got both microphones on. And there's been no blaring noises yet, so I think it's going to be all right, but I'm hopeful that that'll help maybe some who are having a little bit more difficulty hearing to hear better. I don't know if it will or not, but we'll try. <laughs> As you know, a week ago today, I stood before you in Bible class and we were studying from the book of James and we were talking about the concept of counting it all joy when we fall into various trials. And then that afternoon, Carla fell on the ice and broke her leg and I found myself struggling with counting it all joy as I had fallen into a trial. But I also had the thought that, you know, that's kind of funny in a way. How ironic that that very morning we had been talking about that concept and then now I'm put to the test, right? Now I've got to practice what I preach. And over the course of this past week, I cannot say, in all honesty, that I have perfectly exhibited the attitude of joy as we have been trying to adjust to um, this new reality that will be with us for several more weeks. But I am trying my best to stay positive and to look at this as an opportunity to grow in several ways. I've gotten much better at laundry. I've cleaned a good portion of the house, gotten some things organized. And so I think when all is said and done, I will be better having gone through this. And I think Carla will be able to say the same. I think it will be good for our children as they learn how to take on more responsibility and be helpful with different things and what it means to serve and to look after others. And I thought about several others of our congregation who are struggling in different ways, who are dealing with not-so-ideal situations. And as I had found some humor in my own situation, I got to thinking about humor in general and the question, does God have a sense of humor? Because I've seen it in my own life, and I think that as we look through the Scriptures, we can see several examples of quite humorous things. Now, as we discuss some of these this morning, we're also going to touch on points that are not so funny, but my hope is that when all is said and done, we will be able to take something beneficial away as we study together. And as typically happens, when I started to lay out all of this in an outline, I realized very quickly that smashing it all into one sermon would be a mistake. You'd probably all be quite upset with me and not laughing <laughs> as you sat here for an hour or however it would, however long it would take me to get through it all. So I've broken it up into two parts for that reason. Proverbs 17.22, it says, A merry heart does good, like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. 
So as we think about this question and as we look at some examples of humor in the scriptures, I hope that it will cause our heart to be merry and that the result will be like medicine. It will help all of us in our optimism and in our appreciation of all God has done for us. The first example that we're going to notice is in Mark chapter 5, if you turn there with me. Going to make you work a little bit today for these passages. You're going to have to turn with me to just about all of them. So, Mark chapter 5, you want to go ahead and open up your Bible there. We're going to start in verse 24 and then read down through verse 34. Now, the section of scripture that we're reading here kind of is nested inside a larger story where you find this man has um, his daughter who is plagued by a a demon and very sick. Uh, She's at the point of death. And so he comes and asks Jesus for assistance with that. And as Jesus is making his way towards uh, his home, these other events unfold as well. So... That is what we are going to focus on here. So verse 24, it says, Jesus went with this man. His name was Jairus, as we find a little earlier on there. And this great multitude followed him and thronged him. So in your mind, you kind of have to picture, you see on TV and things where, you know, a celebrity goes somewhere, somebody very well known, and There's a large crowd that gathers and they're all trying to, you know, reach out and shake hands or get an autograph or something of that nature. And that's kind of what you have to picture here. That's the idea of, you know, they're thronging him. They're trying to get to him and and touch him, as we see with this uh, certain woman that we're going to read about. Verse 25, this certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. So she'd gone to various doctors trying to get assistance, gone through what we would gather to be several different kinds of procedures, operations, we might say, but nothing had had helped her. It says that she'd spent all that she had and was no better, but rather actually grew worse in her condition. So when she'd heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, as she kind of thought within her own mind, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So she has such a faith in who Jesus is, believes in who he is, and his ability to heal her that in her mind, it's not even that she has to touch his skin or shake his hand or something of that nature. If she can just touch his very garment, that that will be enough. And verse 29 says, immediately this fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Now here's where the funny part enters in. Verse 30, Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, he turns around in the crowd and he says, who touched my clothes? (laughs) And his disciples, you can only imagine how baffled they are, right? As they're seeing all this great multitude, they're all reaching out, trying to touch him. So his disciples say, you see this multitude thronging you, and yet you say, who touched me? Right? And how, how silly that must have sounded to them. 
But he looked around to see her who had done this thing. Uh, the woman, of course, was fearful at this point. She felt like, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that, uh, even though she, she knew she'd been healed. So she was fearful and she was trembling, knowing what had happened. Uh, but she decides to to fess up to what she'd done. She comes and she falls down before him and tells him the whole truth. And so he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And as you continue reading there, the story uh, talks about how he restores life to this young daughter who um, had originally prompted him to go where he was going. Uh, but I think that's a very humorous example from the scriptures where given the situation, uh, you can only imagine, like we said, how silly that must have sounded to his disciples. But yet, when we look at the account overall, we see such a powerful example of faith. And as I think about this passage and how this woman was healed because of her faith, it reminded me of 1 John chapter 5 there and, and verse 4. And most of you are familiar with that verse, but it says there, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is the victory as we sing from time to time. What else? Another humorous example in the scriptures that I thought of was in Luke chapter 14. I'm going to turn over there. Luke chapter 14. I'm going to start there in verse 15, read down through verse 24. And this is a parable that Jesus taught. Verse 15, it says, When one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, the things that he'd been teaching, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus then teaches this parable. Verse 16, he says, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, Well, I've bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, Well, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to go test them. So I ask that you would have me excused. And verse 20 always makes me laugh. And still another said, Well, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. <laughs> And it's just so funny because there's really no explanation given. Well, what does you taking a wife have to do with you not being able to come to the supper, right? It makes you wonder. But nonetheless, we see these, really all of them are pretty silly uh, excuses that they begin to make as to why they cannot come. So as a result of that, the servant comes and reports this to his master, verse 21, and the master of the house was angry. He wasn't laughing. He told his servant to go quickly out into the streets and lanes of the city and to bring in the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And so the servant 
does that, and he reports back. He says, Master, it's done as you've commanded, and there's still room. So the master says again to the servant, Well, go further. Go out into the highways and the hedges. Compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper. So despite the humor, obviously, that is contained therein, if you look at the bigger picture, it's obviously not all that funny of a parable at all. It's really quite, quite a sad one when you think about how this speaks to, of course, the Jews who were the first recipients of the gospel message, but by and large rejected Christ. And so the Gentiles had the gospel extended to them that all men everywhere might be able to come and be a part of this feast that the Master has prepared. And so that is good news, of course, but it's sad when we think about those who will be lost because of these silly excuses that they had come up with. And there's a lesson, of course, there for us today because people continue to make really pretty silly excuses as to why uh, they should be excused from what God offers them. I thought about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, there at the very beginning of that chapter, as he wrote to those in Corinth, he said, We then as workers together with him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So, perhaps this morning there's someone here who has been making excuses as to why they would rather not come and be a part of God's feast that he has laid out before us. And so it would behoove you to consider the folly of those excuses and what the end result of that persistence will lead you to, which is an eternity separated from God. So recognize that today is the day of salvation if you need to accept Christ and render obedience to him. What else? You know, some of these, maybe you'll think I have a twisted sense of humor, <laughs> but that's all right. Now let's come back here to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 39 and read down through verse 42 there. So another parable that Jesus taught here, he spoke a parable, verse 39. He said, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? And I can remember even from the time I was a young child, every time somebody would read that verse, I would kind of snicker to myself. Now, obviously, we know that blindness is not something that's funny if you're dealing with that issue, as even some of our number are. It's no laughing matter, but I guess as a child especially, I would picture, you remember the cartoon with the three blind mice? And they just kind of poke around and they'd reach some stairs and the first one would fall off the stair and then the next one would fall off because nobody could see where they were going. <laughs> so I just always would picture that in my mind when thinking about what Jesus is teaching here. We can understand the 
ludicrous nature of you imagine uh, there's a group of people and they're trying to figure out how to get somewhere and all of a sudden someone who's blind stands up and says, oh, I know how to get there, follow me. <laughs> right? Nobody's going to follow him. He can't even see where he's going, right? How silly. But yet spiritually, this happens all the time. It is happening this very day. There are people who are following the blind to their own misfortune. He continues in verse 40. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. He says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own. He says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. When you read it in the overall context, you know, sometimes we kind of isolate those two different passages, even though it's really one and the same, especially here in Luke's narrative. But it really flows all together, doesn't it? You know, you and I can be the blind leaders where we're going about trying to guide people. When we have these planks in our eyes, we have these large problems that we need to ourselves deal with before we can have any hope of leading somebody else. Over in 1 John chapter 4, First John chapter 4 in the very first verse there, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You know, the thing about false teachers, sometimes a false teacher can be so without necessarily intending to be. You know, sometimes somebody can be sincere about what they're teaching or what they're believing. And they're trying to share that with other people and just not realizing due to their own failure to study adequately or whatever it might be. Maybe they were themselves taught incorrectly. And so they can be sincerely leading others into calamity. And so that is why we need to follow the advice that we find, not just here in John's writings, but in various other places as well. We have to test the ones that we are listening to. Make sure that they are teaching the truth. Let's go back to the Old Testament for a minute. Let's go back to 1 Kings. I'm going to look here in chapter 18. Another story that's probably familiar to most of you. 1 Kings chapter 18. and I'm going to read verses 20 through 40. So a little bit longer reading here. But in this context, you recall that Ahab was the king at the time over Israel. He and Elijah, the prophet, didn't get along very well because Ahab, as you know, he and his wife Jezebel, they were leading the nation astray after false gods, especially the Baals. And so Elijah, here on this occasion, submits to him, well, let's have a contest. Let's see which god is the true God. And the king consents to that. And so we're going to read about what unfolds. 
So verse 20 there, it says, Ahab sent for all the children of Israel, gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal, that is. And Elijah came to all the people, and he said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Make up your minds. But the people answered him not a word. They didn't have anything to say at this point. So he continues, he says, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, and they'll cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. He says, I'll prepare the other one and do you know the same thing. So then we're going to have them call on the name of their gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So the people all considered that, and they said, yeah, that's well spoken. That, that's a good way to test and see which one's going to be the legitimate God. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, verse 25, Choose one bull for yourselves, prepare it first for your many, and call the name of your God. But again, put no fire under the sacrifice. So they took the bull which was given them, they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. So several hours here. They were saying, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they'd made and about noon, this is where the humor comes in, right? You can kind of picture Elijah. He's just kind of sitting back there watching all this. And he knows it's all just a bunch of nonsense, right? And you can imagine kind of a little smirk on his face as he's just watching all this take place. So Elijah, about noontime, he cries out, or he says to them, he says, why don't you cry aloud for he's a god. Maybe he's meditating or maybe he's just busy. Or maybe he's gone on a journey. Perhaps he's even sleeping and he must be awakened. So, of course, they don't perceive his jesting, right? They don't perceive the humor there. They, they take him seriously. Oh, yeah, that, that's a good point. Maybe he is sleeping. So, so they cry aloud. They do exactly what he suggested. And they even go to the point where they start to cut themselves, it says, as was their custom with knives and lances till their blood was gushing out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But again, there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So Elijah says to all the people, he get, he's waited long enough now. He says, come near to me. He gathers everybody over to his side now. The people all come near to him and he repairs the altar of the Lord that had been broken down. He takes twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces. He laid it on the wood, and he said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. So they did it a second time. He says, do it a third time. They did it a third time. So water, at this point, 
says it ran all around the altar and it filled this trench that he'd made. It was completely full of water too. So much water had been poured on this, this altar at this point. So now that's interesting because if you've ever tried to light something that's damp, you go out in the woods, maybe you're camping or whatever it is, if you go find a bunch of damp leaves, you try and light those leaves, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> you're, it's a futile thing to do. So here Elijah had you know, set this contest in order. He'd done the same thing that they had done, but he goes even a step, I guess we'd say maybe three steps beyond what these other prophets had done. And not only is he not going to set any fire to it, but he's going to make it so wet and damp that even the best attempt, the best fire starter that they could find amongst all the people would have no hope of ever lighting this, this altar on fire. So it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near. He said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And it says that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, but not just the sacrifice. It also consumed the wood and the stones and the dust. Right? You imagine how hot a fire would have to be to not only, I mean, you've seen a fire break down wood, right? It burns it up, consumes it. It takes a little while. This fire is so hot, so intense, that it doesn't only burn up the wood. It burns up the stones. It burns up the dust. I mean, there's just literally nothing left. You might kind of think in your mind, you've pictured or you've seen video, I'm sure, of a nuclear bomb going off. And what's left afterwards, it's just nothing, right? It consumes everything. Now, obviously, God didn't drop a nuke on, <laughs> on the altar, but that's the intensity of this fire, right? Now, when all the people saw that, verse 39 says, they fell on their faces, and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so in verse 40, we find that Elijah commands that these prophets of Baal be seized and they are all executed down by the brook. Now, obviously, again, as, as is kind of the pattern that we've been seeing here with these examples of humor, the larger story, uh, there's more serious things to, to note. And... We read this passage and others that are similar to it where we read about idol worship and things and we kind of recognize the folly of all of that and we wonder in our minds perhaps, well, how could somebody ever fall into something so silly as idol worship? But yet people do that today. And the idols are not these carved or graven images perhaps, but people bow down at the altar of money or fame or various other things and they place that as most important in their lives, thinking that that somehow is going to fulfill everything that they're longing for, everything that they're seeking. 
I like uh, the passage over here in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, right at the end of chapter 2, there's, a, there's three verses here that I'd like to share with you. Verse 18, it says, What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? Or the molded image? He describes it as a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it. To make mute idols, mute meaning they can't speak, they can't say anything. Woe to him who says to wood, awake, or to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. But, I like verse 20 especially, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And we see that played out so perfectly, don't we, in that story that we had just read. Let's come over to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 21. There's a chapter I'm sure you probably haven't visited in a while. I know I hadn't. Second Chronicles chapter 21. In this chapter, we read about King Jehoram, who was the son of King Jehoshaphat, who had been a good king. But Jehoram does not follow in the footsteps of his father, sadly. And I want us to start by reading at the end of the chapter, verse 20, because here it's documenting his demise, okay? And there's a little humor injected here. It says, He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for eight years. And notice it says, To no one's sorrow he departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Uh, another translation renders that, To no one's regret <laughs> he passed on. <laughs> and... Um, I'm sure we can all think about uh, examples from history of men or women who led particularly wicked lives that when the end of their time came, you can imagine not many were probably all that heartbroken that they were no more. And that's really quite a tragic thing. Uh, there's humor there, but there's also sorrow, really, when you stop and think about the bigger picture. Now, why was this the case? Why, when Jehoram passed away, was there no mourning? Was there no weeping for his passing? Well, we can come back earlier in the chapter and find the answer to that. If you look starting in verse 4, we'll read verses 4 through 6, first of all. It says, when Jehoram was established over the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself. And notice one of the first things that he did is he killed all of his brothers with the sword and also others of the princes of Israel. So he was so selfishly motivated and interested in keeping the power he now had that he was going to eliminate any competition, killed all of his brothers. Jehoram, it says, was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done, for he had the daughter of Ahab, as a wife. 
that speaks to the influence of of a spouse. We actually saw that earlier, didn't we, in the excuse that we'd noticed in Luke in the parable that Jesus taught. I've taken a wife. I cannot come. Sometimes that happens. Somebody marries somebody who is not sharing with them in their faith in God, and they get pulled away from God as a result. We see that was the case here with Jehoram. His wicked wife influenced him to do terrible things. It says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Jump down there a few verses to verse 11. And we'll read 11 through 15 here. It says, Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah. He caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit harlotry, and he led Judah astray. And we read about Elijah again. Elijah sends him a letter. And the letter reads, Thus says the Lord God of your father David, because you've not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, who was another righteous king, but you've walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, you've made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot, like the harlotry of the house of Ahab, and you've also killed your brothers, those of your father's household, who were better than yourself. Behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all of your possessions. And you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. And as you keep reading there, we see that that's exactly what happened. So his wickedness not only adversely affected himself, but as you see, it adversely affected the whole nation that he was leading. So you can imagine when his time finally came, how the people were finally kind of relieved, actually, rather than mourning his death. Hopeful that perhaps his replacement would be guiding them in a better direction. So obviously there are some important lessons there for us, aren't there? Over here in the book of Psalms, Psalms 116 Psalm 116 and verse 15. It says there, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Well, that's not to say that God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked. We could go to the book of Ezekiel and establish that truth. But especially precious is the passing of one of the saints, one who is following God. Because when you think about it, it's kind of like a realization of the prodigal son, right? But in a greater sense, in the sense of eternity, right? Where God is welcoming home uh, one of his children. That's what it's like when we die in Christ. And so it kind of highlights an important lesson for us. If you think about the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 7 there in verse 1. It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. Living a good life, having a good reputation. Not necessarily that everybody on the earth is going to love you or think you're the best thing that's ever come the way of the earth. But if God looks down with you uh, upon you with favor, then, then that is really the only thing, the most important thing. In this life. 
And so we can learn a lesson from the life of the wicked king Jehoram as we consider what happened due to his wickedness. One final example this morning, a little bit shorter example here. Let's come back a few pages to the book of Proverbs there, chapter 27, and just one verse here this time. Proverbs 27, verse 14. It says there, He who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. Now, I see some of you are already chuckling at that as you understand the meaning there. I'm not a morning person. I'm sure some of you are the same way. Some people are morning people. That's just the way it is, but... If you're not a morning person and it's real early and you know somebody comes in the room and hey good morning man are you ready for the day? We kind of want to punch that person, don't we? Right? <laughs> we we don't receive that as a blessing. It, it's received as a curse, right? Why are you so happy this early? Right? I I'm not awake yet. I'm not ready for that. <laughs> And so it's, it's humorous, isn't it? The truths that are pointed out through the inspired writings. But that got me thinking about just a larger point in thinking about how we interact with each other and doing so with wisdom. And I think that Paul speaks to that over here in Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to turn there with me, we'll read just a short passage. Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 25 there. And the overall context here, Paul is describing the new man, the one that is created in Christ, in his image, when we have died to sin and we have put on Christ. So verse 25, he says, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we're members of one another. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Verse 29, notice, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, be tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So as we notice these examples of humor, we can also learn very important lessons as we look at the overall context of these various passages. I, again, hope this evening to do something very similar as we look at some additional examples from the scriptures of humor that can also teach us valuable lessons. We'll look at six additional examples, Lord willing, tonight. As we conclude our lesson this morning, I thought we would come over to 1 Peter, the very first chapter there. 
And there's a, a section here of this first chapter that I think is especially applicable to the overall idea behind our study today. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in... Verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, notice, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him yet believing, notice you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, I read that, and what that tells me is that as Christians, we should be a people who are smiling, a people who are laughing, a people who are ever joyful because we recognize what we have in Christ. You know, it uses the phrase there, he's begotten us again. We've been born again, in other words. How does that happen? Well, in the same book here, you could go a few chapters further into chapter 3 and verse 21, and it tells us there that in talking about Noah and the flood of Noah's day and how the ark delivered them to salvation, to safety, to life. He says there's an antitype which now saves us, and that is baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. It is that process that causes us to be born again and to have this living hope, this incorruptible inheritance that awaits us. And so despite the calamities of life, we can have that joy, and that's a wonderful thing. And I hope that's been impressed upon us this morning, and I hope that we can continue to do so tonight as we come together again a little bit later today. Proverbs 15 and verse 13, it says, A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. So I hope these things have served to make our hearts merry today. If you're here and you have need in some way to make correction in your life, whether that means obedience to the gospel, becoming a Christian, or whether you need to come out of misery and, and darkness because of something that's come upon you in your life and you need to reignite that joy, that can be yours and is yours, really, in Christ. If you need prayers this morning, to that end, we would love to pray with you. Whatever it might be, we stand ready to assist you. And so as we stand and sing the song that our brothers selected, if anyone has that need, please let it be known by coming up to the front. <laughs>